I'm going to once again ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're going to be looking this Lord's Day at verses 3 through 10. 3 through 10. In the world of Reformed Baptist preaching, I might uh, be fairly accurate to say that's quite a section of text to bite off in one sermon, and I'm going to attempt it with the help and mercy of God. Let's read the text together. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. What a wonderful text of Scripture. What a, what a wonderful teaching passage we have before us. We often, most often, in fact always, the Christian, when he sits down to a meal, what is the first thing he should do before he puts a bite of food in his mouth? He should give thanks. Beloved, we are about to enjoy a meal. Amen. Well, first, by way of introduction, I want to kind of step back for a moment and just get kind of an overview, a commentary overview of of the content of this passage. And that is that the instruction, the commands, and the admonitions are to the church. This is an in-house set of instructions. It's not to the world, it's not to the pagan, it, it's, to, it's to us sitting here, it's to the family of God, it's to God's kids. This is a father teaching his children. And, and we ought to receive it as such, amen? We, we should be listening when God speaks. Every Christian in the church is to hear and to obey these instructions. Nowhere is there a distinction in Scripture made between some Christians who are exempt from the commands in this passage. They don't have to obey them. And those who are required to obey them, as if there's two classes of of Christian, perhaps you've heard this. There are Christians and then there are disciples. I would submit to you that the Bible knows no such distinction and it is an invention of man to introduce it to the text of Scripture. The unbeliever, however, is commanded to repent of his sins and unbelief and if, and if he passes from this life and has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures tell us clearly and plainly and without mistake, don't miss this, that he will be cast into hell, a real place where there is continuous suffering. That is the teaching of the Bible. We do men no favors when we don't command them 
as the Scriptures do, to repent. Well, there is a tendency regarding repentance in the church to speak of repentance in in terms of our salvation, and that's right and good and correct. Um, My friends from Russia were here a couple of months ago, and, and I can remember sitting in their church just before it was time to go forward and preach, and and listening to a couple of people who were coming forward for church membership, and they had to give a testimony to the congregation, and it would begin like this, in such and such a year or such and such a date, I repented. I I repented. And that's the way that they speak of coming to Christ over there. They would say, I repented. Well, we don't say that here, but I sometimes wonder, dear Christians, should we? Should, should we speak with the language that they speak with? I repented. Yes, I'm repenting, but I repented. We don't refer to our salvation like that anymore, do we? We say, I got saved, or, or I believed, or I came to Christ. And I don't believe that it's intentional on our part that we would push repentance to the background, but nonetheless... I think we live in a day as Christians where maybe we ought to take up the language of our Russian brethren and speak of the day we repented. God commands repentance, and He commands repentance not just of the pagan, but also of the Christian. He commands the pagan to repent, to to repent of his sin of unbelief, and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He commands the Christian to live a life of repentance. We like to think sometimes as Christians we're not subject to unbelief. Let me correct your thinking on that. Because whenever, listen, whenever we encounter a text of Scripture and we, in our mind, withdraw from it, we do this in all sorts of ways, don't we? Well, that's for so-and-so, and so the wife puts the elbow into the ribs of her husband. Or that's, that's for the wife and the husband does the same thing. Or that's for so-and-so at church. We don't listen. We don't hear. We don't take it to heart. Internalize it and seek to obey it. That's a form of unbelief, isn't it? What, what else can the Christian call it when confronted with a passage of Scripture and we withdraw from it than unbelief? Because if we believe it, what happens? We obey it. Amen? Well, there is this scene regarding the repentance of the unbeliever. It's in the Areopagus in Athens, and Paul, being grieved at walking through Athens and seeing every kind of deity imaginable, is standing now in the Areopagus, and he's going to talk to the, uh, the Stoics, the philosophers of that day. We have them in our own in our own time and in our own culture. And listen to what he says as he speaks to them. Paul says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature... Now, Paul is not speaking here. We need to be clear. He's not saying that that everyone in that Parthenon, everyone in the Areopagus, is a 
believing, saved child of God. That's not the sense in which Paul is using the phraseology. He's referring to the fact that every human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth is a creation of God. We didn't just show up birthed by some pagan deity. So being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Brother Bill, isn't there a sermon right there? Amen. What is, what is Paul rebuking here? He is rebuking their ignorance and calling them to repentance. Let's continue on. Therefore, having looked overlooked the times of ignorance, and you need to know, by the way, that ignorance is never spoken of as a good thing in Scripture. Never. You see, God, God is... God is no longer overlooking ignorance. Because he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's a change, beloved. He's not overlooking ignorance anymore. So what about the pygmy in Africa who's never heard? That's no excuse, is it? That's no excuse before God. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished to all men by raising him from the dead. But what I want you to notice in this text is the, is the phrase in verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's both pagan, unbeliever, pygmy in Africa, and the Christian. The gospel of repentance has gone out to the whole world, meaning both Jew and Gentile, in and since the first century. That was the message preached to all men everywhere. Repent. I am sometimes taken aback at the lack of, of gospel repentance preaching that you hear on the airwaves and on the television. It's one of the reasons that I bristle so much at some of these cute phrases that the church has come up with. You know, ask Jesus into your heart. Um, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Those sorts of things. That is not what was preached. That is not the gospel. It is not what the disciples preached. Now the reason this is so important, and I'll, I'll come back to this a little more about it, a little more later, a little more later on. I just want to touch on it here. Is that there is this belief or attitude in the church, and I know you've run into it. Perhaps you were victim of it at some point. That I can believe in Jesus and live how I want. Any lifestyle I want, living in any sin that I want, because after all, I'm I'm forgiven. I, I believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. Well, the problem with that is Scripture nowhere teaches it. Instead, there is a gospel of repentance, as we've said. In Acts 26, 19 through 20, we get a little different flavor of, of, of what the Apostle Paul was preaching and who he was preaching it to. That it wasn't just a common man, it was kings. There's people in authority. In verse 19 of Acts chapter 26, Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, 
Now, Paul is not standing before just anybody here. He's standing before the king. Okay, now watch his message. Watch his boldness. Listen to Paul not backing down from the truth. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And what does Paul describe as his not being disobedient? Listen to this. I think this is wonderful. To the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, for the church to not be disobedient, that's the message it has to preach. A gospel of repentance. Now, hold on, I'm going somewhere with all this. I see a furrowed brow. <laughs> Paul says, I went everywhere preaching this message. I went through all of the regions of Galatia and Philistia and everywhere. So if all men everywhere, listen, if all men everywhere are commanded to repent and to bring forth fruit in keeping with that repentance, that's what it says, Right? then that will even more necessarily include the one who says he has faith in Jesus. How can it not? In other words, if I say I've repented, if I say that I have repented of my unbelief and I have turned to Christ in faith, shouldn't there be some fruit? By the way, shouldn't there be a, a love for Christ and a desire for that fruit? So a person says, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. I went forward once. I'm Christian. I, I, and I've met these kinds of people. Tell you, swear up and down, they're a Christian. Boy, you look at their life and there's no distinction between what it was before they walked the aisle and the point in which you're talking to them. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart from Joe Pagan if you tried. And so the Christian, the one who claims to know Christ, must have the fruit that comes in keeping with repentance. Well, there is a parallel passage that we turn to often, and it's in Colossians 3, and I want to go there again. And it speaks of, or speaks to Christians who, and those who say they have repented and believed. In verse 5 of Colossians 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Can I translate that for you? Think of the members of your earthly body, every part of your frame, as dead to immorality. I am dead to that. I cannot do that. I cannot look at that. I cannot listen to that. I will not be a part of that sin. That's what he's saying, right? Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things. Paul zeroes in on those things and said it's because of these things. Now what's interesting about this is, as I was staring at the passage, reading it over and, again, and, over and over again on the screen, letting it kind of soak into my mind, I'm sure my wife looks over at me sometimes in the den and sees me just staring at the screen thinking, he's lost his mind. We tend to think of, of, of the Ten Commandments as the most grievous of sins, right? You shall not 
covet, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, and so on. And we think those are the those are the supremely hard commandments, the most difficult, the, the most weighty, if you will. But listen to what Paul says here. Verse 6, For it is because of these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You get a hint at one of them there. Covetousness and idolatry. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I don't have to commit all of the sins in the Ten Commandments to be a victim of the wrath of God. And see, that ought to frighten even the Christian against being involved and being a partaker of these sins. And in them you once also walked, verse 7, when you were living in them. There's that phrase that tells you this is a person whose lifestyle is those sins. When you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Notice what he's doing here in the test. This is what dawned on me as I went through it for the 189,000th time. He's equating anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth to the person who once lived in them with what comes before it in verse 5. Weighty stuff, isn't it? Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You see, the foundation of this passage is that because of who we are in Christ, we are to consider ourselves dead to these things and to bring forth the fruit of repentance. There's a a sense in which the evil fruit is absent from us. And the fruit of repentance is what fills the tree of your life. Those things are not a part of who you are anymore, Paul says. Lay them aside. Well, I want to digress for a moment. We've been talking about the word repentance. We're all familiar with that word. It is from the Greek word metanoeo. And it occurs some roughly 56 times in the New Testament. That's not the word that occurs the most times, but I think you would agree 56 is a pretty good number of times for the word repentance to show up. It is an indication we ought to pay attention to it, given that number of occurrences. Amen? And it means a changing of the mind. I believed one thing, and now I believe the opposite, or I I thought one way, and now I think another. I've stopped thinking the way that I used to think. I've metaneoed. I've changed the mind. I've turned from it. Paul speaks of this with regard to the Corinthian church, and we've all read the book of Corinthians and seen some of the problems that were a part, systemic part of that church. It's a, it's a, in some ways, a a how-not-to manual in some areas of that letter. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, here's what he says. He says, For I'm, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. Now, that's, by the way, that phrase is not intended to say, well, you're not going to like me and I'm not going to like you. That's not what Paul is saying. 
in the context of this passage, what Paul is saying is this, when I come, you're not going to be the faithful, mature, godly believers walking in repentance, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called that you ought to be. And we've had such a good relationship up till now that when I come, you're not going to like me very much because of those things. It's not going to be fun, Paul says, when I come. That perhaps there will be strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over the many of those who have sinned in the past and, ready for this, not repented. Now, just in case we miss this, so we don't miss this, this is being spoken to a church. And Paul's saying, you've sinned in the past, and I'm coming, but I'm going to mourn, but I'm going to rebuke those who have not repented. If there's any doubt that the Christian must live a life of repentance, you only need to turn to this passage and see that Paul is calling them to repentance. Now listen to what he calls them to repent of. He says that I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So that's not talking about a one-time sin, y'all. The word practiced is there. This has been ongoing lifestyle in these Christians. And Paul says, you've not repented of it. You're still doing it. And when I come, I'm going to deal with you. You're not going to like me very much. You see, Paul is speaking to Christians who have not repented. And by the way, this gets really important when we get to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And he speaks of the Lord's table and those who do not judge the body rightly and many are sick and some have fallen asleep. Same church. Same Corinthian church. And see, that's interesting for us to know because it had been rebuked to a certain degree in 1 Corinthians and now he's here writing another letter possibly because the reports are still coming to him. What's wrong with this picture? See, we know that Christians ought to practice a lifestyle, an intentional lifestyle of repentance because of what we've read before in Ephesians 4. We were there quite a number of weeks ago. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. That's not how we learned Christ. We learned repentance from and in Christ. A turning from sin to Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How is the Christian to think? He's to think God's thoughts after Him. You say, well, how do I know what God thinks? This is a really good place to start and a really good place to end, isn't it? Want to know what God thinks? Get into this book and live there and get it into you. He says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
If you've heard from Christ, you've learned from Christ and been taught in Christ. By the way, all terms for having been born in the Spirit and having received the truth, having received Christ, all things that come to the man or woman redeemed by the blood of Christ. We talked at first about those that where it comes from, I don't know, but that idea that there's two kinds of Christians, there's Christians, then there's higher level of Christians, disciples. No, if you've heard and learned from Christ, you lay aside the old man, you lay aside the old former life of sin because you've been created by God to do so. You've been created in Christ. You are a new creature, a new creation. Well, you see, this is critical for us because this is an outworking of the practical Christian life. This is what it looks like. You might even say it's the daily grind because you're in a fight the moment your feet hit the floor every single day. And believer, you will be in a fight every single day until the day you die. Then you get to rest from the fight, but not until then. Settle it in your minds. Well, if you are a new creation, then the old things are gone. The new things from God have come. They've come. Past tense continuing, by the way. New desires to please God and not ourselves. If you're in Christ, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and you are not your own because you were bought with a price. All those things, Scripture says. And so with that nearly 30-minute introduction... I want to begin our text, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We could sing the doxology and say the amen and go home at that, couldn't we? What we see here is that Paul calls these sins out by name, sinful behaviors and sinful speech that are not to be a part of the life of the believer, you to put them away from you. I have this sometimes vivid imagination with Scripture, and I have this, uh, this idea, this scene of a guy taking something in his hand and standing next to a freeway traffic and throwing it from him. Well, that's the way we're to treat sin, isn't it? If I throw a ham sandwich into freeway traffic at 5 o'clock, what's the most likely result? It's going to be a crushed ham sandwich, isn't it? The believer is to stand back and to throw sin from him with an absolute godly, horrific hatred toward it. Because if you're not killing sin, a sin will be killing you, John Owen said. He was right, wasn't he? Well, the first of these is, we'll take these in order, that's the best way I think to approach them, is immorality. Immorality. It is from the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography, It is used in the New Testament for sexual immorality and its use of adultery and fornication. It refers to any kind of sexual intercourse or involvement outside of biblical marriage between one man and one woman. Anything that is apart from that singular, confined, restricted by God context. If it's not in the context of marriage, where where it is, by the way, good and right and proper and holy and commanded of God, if it is anything other than that, it is sin. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Pretty straightforward. Can't miss this. But people do, and they twist it all in different ways. And by the way, immorality is a destructive sin. 
And it is the one sin that Paul says is a sin against one's own body. You can sin, I can sin lots of sins against you. I can lie to you. I can deceive you. I can steal from you. All kinds of things. But when a man or a woman commits this sin, he commits the sin against his own body. Kind of cutting your arm off to spite your face. I probably quoted that wrong. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, listen to what he says here. Same word is used. Paul says, flee immorality. Run from it. I always get this scene when I read this of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Y'all thinking the same thing as I see a bunch of grins, right? She, she has been after that young man. The sense of the text is this wasn't the first time. She had been after him to sleep with her time and time and time again. Over and over and over again. And finally the day she comes, she cooks up this idea. She comes to him and she makes yet another attempt. And Joseph runs so quick, so hard, and so fast, he leaves his coat behind. I would submit to you the easiest question I've ever asked. Did Joseph do the right thing? Not one I'm amen. Is this a Reformed Baptist church? <laughs> starting to wonder. Of course Joseph did the right thing. Paul says, flee, run from it. If it comes towards you, you run for your life. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There's, it's almost as if there is a, a parenthesis here that is not in the text where Paul says, are you that stupid? Do you not get that you're sinning against your own body? Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? I once heard a preacher say this and it stuck with me. When a man or woman sins a sin that is immorality and he belongs to Christ or she belongs to Christ, they are dragging the Holy Spirit of God into the middle of that sin and the Spirit of God has a front row seat. What a horrific thought, right? Would you commit that sin right out in front of the throne of Almighty God? Then we ought not commit it at all because the Holy Holy Spirit of God indwells us temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You are not your own. You do not belong to you. For you have been brought with a price. Therefore, what's the result of the Holy Spirit indwelling us? And having been bought with a price, we are to glorify God in our body. And boy, the ramifications of that are incredible. My life, my breath, my path, my job, my wife, my possessions. There is nothing about me or anything that I own that does not belong to Him. It lies in His hand and he, he will and may and must do with it as He wills. As long as you're on this earth. So why would you want to sin that sin? Well, Paul goes on and speaks of the next word, impurity. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. This would include any kind of immorality, but it would also include what you look at and what you listen to. It would include anything that the Word of God would command the Christian to not be part of. Any all manner of debauchery and sexual behavior that would have been a part of the Ephesian culture. 
at that time. Then he goes on to greed and says, First, we must understand that it is when we speak of greed, it is not a sin to have money or wealth. It is not. However, the Bible is clear that the Christian is not to love money or wealth. It's, it's funny that we sometimes get that backwards, don't we? We, instead of loving people and using money, what do we do? We flip them, right? We, we love money and possessions and we use people. That's backward thinking and the Christian is not to be a part of it. We're to love people and to use money, much like we would use a cell phone or a screwdriver. Money is nothing more than a tool to get something done. Other than that, it has no intrinsic value whatsoever. Christian is not to love money or wealth. And he certainly is not to put wealth before God. He goes on and mentions filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Christian, you know it when you hear it, don't you? And out in the world, are you going to hear it? Amen. You're going to hear it all the time. It's The word filthiness is from the word escrotes, and it means indecent, obscene, or shameful, and abusive speech. should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. And yet I think that nearly all of us, nearly all of us, maybe all of us, at one point in our life, at some time following our conversion to Christ, have had things come out of our mouth that ought not come out of our mouth. Escrotes. It even sounds bad, doesn't it? I I wouldn't even eat something called escrotes. It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? My mom used to say when we were kids, I wouldn't hold in my hand what just came out of your mouth. That's a good saying, isn't it? In Verse 8 of Colossians 3, which you just read, he says, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Same word, escrotes. Just say it enough, it'll stick in your mind. It's the kind of speech that Paul's talking about that does not give grace to the one hearing it, but offends the senses. You, You all know what I'm talking about. You've heard it. And by the way, you've not only heard it out in the world, you've probably heard it from Christians, and you've heard it from TV. It is characteristic of this kind of speech that it is not God-honoring, but is dishonoring to the one using it and to the one hearing it. Foul language, language that is abusive of the appearance or intelligence of another image-bearer of God. Unkind speech. It's just nasty in the way it sounds. Demeaning and degrading speech. Well, instead of filthy speech, Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace. Always with grace. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Isn't that good? Seasoned with grace. Can I speak with grace? Can I give grace as a Christian, knowing how much grace has been given to me? Well, he goes on. And the next word is silly talk or foolish talk. Out of all of them, this is probably close to the most blunt of the list that Paul gives. It's from two Greek words, more and logos. More and logos. More being the word used for fool. It is the word from which we get moron. Literally. And logos, the word for word, of course. It is moronic or foolish speech that should not be a part of the Christian's vocabulary. 
It would include, not limited to, jokes in bad taste or denigrating speech. Makes you uncomfortable when you hear it. Makes you want to find someplace else to be at the moment. You ever had that feeling? Someone is using that kind of talk and you want to be anywhere but where you're standing. James Boyce writes this of silly or foolish or morologia. He writes, it means one who talks like a fool. The concern here is not with intelligence. It is with morals. The word refers to one who makes light of high standards of behavior, thinking that it is somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling. By the way, it's what television does, doesn't it? And I don't care what service it is. You can get on YouTube, Netflix, Prime, all of it. There's hardly anything you can watch anymore that does not pump filth into your living room. If it is not blaspheming God, it is using foul language. If it is not blaspheming God or using foul language, it's got nudity in it. And it's everywhere. Television pretends to be funny, but it is destructive of those values that hold a society together and those values that suppress its worst elements. Well, I think Dr. Boyce was right. He goes on to the last one, coarse jesting. Coarse jesting, crude jokes or crude and obscene innuendo. It, it refers to the kind of joke telling that is vulgar and distasteful. Humor that is sometimes sexual or demeaning in nature. The, the, word is, the world is fond of that kind of humor, aren't they? They love that kind of humor. To the place where nearly every comedian you can watch, and I don't care who it is, with the exception of some Christian comedians, I say some Christian comedians because I have on occasion heard a, quote, Christian comedian engage in coarse jesting. And I'm reaching for the remote to turn him off. Because I can get that kind of stuff in the world for free and I don't have to pay for it. And no one makes me let it into my home. Amen? Every comedian that can almost finds or resorts to that kind of humor just to get a laugh. That's how far we've fallen as a society. And see, those of us who fear God will not engage in that kind of jesting, will not listen to it. Because what do we know? We know that one day we will stand before God and we will, and this is the terrifying thing, Christian, but the true thing, biblically, we will give an account for every single word that comes out of our mouth. I can't begin to imagine what that will look like, but that's what the Scripture says. Can't get away from it. Can't, can't back up from it. Paul says, don't you know that we will all give an account for every idle word that we speak? That scares me. And it ought to. Paul says, these things are not right, they're not fit for the believer, and they are not righteousness before God, and they have no place whatsoever in the Christian life. None of them. There is a statement at the end of verse 4 where Paul sort of turns the corner in the text with you, as if you will, and after finishing the list, he says, rather, or instead of these things, giving of thanks. Fill your, fill your mind and your heart and therefore your mouth with the giving of thanks. Be thankful. And I rather think in some ways that being thankful is because 
We want to thank God that He not only has forgiven us for those sins, but is taking them from us and making us into the image of Christ so we don't have to grieve over our sins anymore. Should that bring thankfulness to you? To know that God is faithful in doing that? Paul says, rather giving of thanks because the one who has these sins as a regular part of his or her life is most likely still unregenerate. They characterize the person who does not know God. We started off talking about the two classes of Christian, sort of. The regular everyday Christian and the disciple. We said there was no distinction. If you run into somebody who excuses their sin, saying that I am, I am a Christian, but I'm not really a disciple, then you've got an unregenerate person on your hands. And why do we say that these sins are probably most likely still marking the unregenerate person? That's because of what we read in Romans one twenty one, where it's as clear as it can be. If you know Him and are known by Him, then this will speak that to you. Paul says, for even though they knew God, Paul says they knew Him. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Hear the thankfulness, the thanksgiving. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Can I say to you that there's no distinction between a Christian and a disciple. An obedient disciple is a Christian and so forth. It's nothing but foolish speculation to think otherwise. So what is the overarching reason that we are not to be partakers of these sins? What's the umbrella reason? What's the foundational reason we're not to be involved in these? Paul says it in verse 5, For this you know with certainty, you know this, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Argument over, case closed. If this is true of you, if this is characteristic of your life, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I don't care what you say, Paul says. You will not be there. Does that frighten you, Christian? Does that make you look in the mirror at your life once again? It should. But you know what? That's a good thing. Makes me look at my life again. Makes me sit back and open my eyes one more time. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you not want the wrath of God to come upon you? Then go back to the Gospel once again. And if these are characteristic of your life, what you think, what you speak, what you listen to, what you love, just remember, that those who practice such things will endure the wrath of God and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a second aberrant movement that we see in our in American evangelicalism and it seems to be particular to this country only. Have you noticed that? These kinds of movements seem to be here and shame on America when we import this nonsense to other cultures probably ought to produce a big 24-hour long apology to the rest of the world for exporting this nonsense. It's called the, the free grace movement. And this aberrant 
aberrant form of Christianity called the Free Grace or Anti-Lordship Movement. This movement has grown in popularity in American evangelicalism, and it, it dis- espouses a doctrine that says one, one is a Christian and can be saved and is going to heaven if they've ever said the sinner's prayer or gone forward or any of that stuff. And the movement, those who teach it, is heretical. And it makes God out to be a liar. And I say this because it is not the gospel and it is not part of the church. It denies Christ, it denies the gospel is efficacious in changing one's life and its gospel requirement of repentance and obedience. I say that carefully for that reason. It is a gospel, necessary gospel requirement that there be repentance and obedience. We find this in 1 John 1.9 and we're all familiar with, with it. I could probably say it, you could repeat it with me. So if we confess our sins and so on. But it's a little earlier in 1 John where John writes this in verse 5. He says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. That is the overriding, overarching sentence that will dictate everything that follows it. Who God is. Everything else that John says is based upon that statement. Let me read it again. This is the message we have heard from Him, the Him is Christ, and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. I can almost see John preaching this and taking one of the longest pregnant pauses you've ever heard in a sermon. Just to let that kind of sink into the bones. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness... We what? We lie and do not practice the truth. Can it be any more plain than that? Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, you see the contrast between darkness and light? As He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what? All sin. But there's a condition there that we are walking in the light. That we are in Him, walking in the light, therefore we have fellowship with Him, and then what? The blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin, if we walk in the light. John's words, not mine. Verse 8 says that if we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we acknowledge the lifelong ongoing struggle with our sins, which by the way, that struggle should be in some ways decreasing as you grow older in Christ. It won't be the same sins any longer. doesn't mean you won't have a struggle with sin, but you should be stronger in your fight against it. Those sins should be lessening in their frequency and severity as we walk with Christ, as the Holy Spirit does His work in us, as He is faithful to do. He's faithful to do it, which means what? There's going to be work done in you. He's going to do it. Listen to what John says in the the next chapter in verse 1. My little children, we read this earlier. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's the truth. If you sin, you have an advocate. You have the best attorney in the world that money can't buy. How cool is that? And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Your attorney paid for your sins. You, you might say it's kind of in the bag. 
and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we've come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. What's that? Could I rightly apply the word obedience to that? The one who says, I have come to know Him, I'm Christian, and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, notice the back and forth, the antiphonal form of this. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, John says. The one who says he abide in him ought to walk, ought to himself walk in the same manner in which he walked. Again, These are not hard texts. We're not looking at Revelation chapter 14 trying to figure out what the judgments are and all of that. This is plain, straightforward Scripture to the church. How absolutely true verse 6 is. And we want to to hear and to heed the warning and to not be deceived as those who are part of that free grace anti-lordship movement. You see, these sins that Paul lists in our text bring the wrath of God on those who practice them. Do we understand the weight and the severity of that? Those sins bring the wrath of God. Now, there is a sense in which the Christian will not endure the wrath of God, but do you want to be on the chastising end of God's rod for participating in those sins? I don't world beats me up enough. Amen? By the way, just so I've said it, there. listen, there is no such thing as free grace. It costs Jesus everything. How dare we call it free grace? Now, yes, I, I acknowledge there's a sense in which it is free to us. God freely gives us of His magnificent grace. Would you agree with that? Amen? But free as in cheap and easy? Y'all, I'm sorry, there's a theological word for that. It's disgusting. As for the anti-lordship meeting, as we draw this to a close, and I realize I've gone quite a ways over time, for which you are all commanded to forgive me. Amen. In Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 8, just some, some practical instruction to burn into your mind. So if you say to yourself, well, yeah, I see what you're doing with the passage, Pastor. I'm just not quite convinced. I know you've gone to this passage in Colossians 3 and you went to 1 John. Can I give you one more? Is that all right? And I would invite you to study this at home on your own. There will be a test next week. Verse 2, listen to this of Romans chapter 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Now he's listed a whole list of sins, only a couple of which are in our text, but there's all kinds of sins. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You you think just by calling it out in somebody else that you're going to get away with it? My mom used to say, you've got another think coming. Or do, you, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God 
what, what the kindness of God actually does is lead you to repentance. That's what Paul's saying there. You wouldn't be involved in those things if you knew the kindness of God because it leads you to what? Repentance. That's what the kindness of God does. See, so there's not this Christian that can go on saying they're a Christian and live in sin till the day they die because of the kindness of God. If you know God, you have the kindness of God and it will lead you to repentance. Pastor, you seem a little incensed about this. Yeah, I am. I meet these people from time to time. I still meet them decades later. I'm Christian. Well, how's your wife doing? Oh, we're not married. How long have you been cohabitating? You say shacking up, people get offended at that. It's really... Well, you think, say fornicating. That'll really get you in trouble. Although that's the biblical language, isn't it? How long have you been doing? Oh, we've been together 25 years. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Again, not my words, beloved. This is the teaching of Scripture. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his profession of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not what it says, is it? Who will render to each person according to his deeds. Can't say amen. You ought to say what? Ouch. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious. What's selfish ambition, by the way? You've got to think this through for a minute. What is selfish ambition? It's the ambition of the self, isn't it? That's what it says. Selfish ambition is the ambition of the self. I want what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live my life my way. I'm, 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 I'm fill in the blank. But what's that? It's not God's will. It's your will. By perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but what? Obey unrighteousness. How much clearer can God be to plead with you and give you His word there? Wrath and indignation. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Don't do it, Paul says. You're a Christian. Don't act or speak or behave the way the unbeliever does who does not know God the way they act. Don't do it. Pretty blunt, isn't it? Don't sin with them. Instead, walk with God and obey Christ with us. You see, Christianity is a, at its core is a faith that, that is an us or them faith, isn't it? You're either, listen, you're either in Christ, His words, or you're in the world. But you can't be both. You can't put one foot over the fence and another foot on the other side of the fence and walk down the middle of the fence. You're in Him. You're a child of of God. You're walking with Christ. Or you ain't. You might say it's the ams and ain'ts. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what's present in a person who's walking in the light. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the nature and character of one who's in the light. Father, we thank you for your word. It, it has such pristine clarity. The problem's not with your word, Father, it's with us. It's, it's with our, our willful ignorance. It is with our willful blindness at times. 
It's with our desires to please ourselves and not to please you. Give us a holy hatred for that desire to please ourselves. We are your servants. We are your slaves. Help us to think, to walk, to speak the way that Mary did. And she said, be it done to me as you have said. For the sake of our God and Savior Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen.